0: assessments and these different tests that john gives us all along that if you're really a child of god these things are going to be evident and now today man he comes and so we're going to call this the child of god test today and we're going to look and see uh, god what are what are you saying to us we we want to receive this we want to walk not in fear or condemnation we want to walk in the grace of who we are as your children so help us to see and in verse one i want to i want you to keep your bible or your device there and take notes because this this helps you Notice what he says right from the beginning. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. Now, that is hard for us to understand, but let me give you a little bit of a a picture. On August the 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed on takeoff from Detroit, uh, killing 155 people. They discovered that one person was not killed in this airplane crash. It was a little four-year-old girl. Her name was Cecilia. And when they started investigating, and when they looked at Cecilia, they did not see any great trauma to her physically that had taken place through this crash. And they thought maybe she was just a little girl that was somewhere in the area and has wandered up or something until they started unfolding what actually happened. When when it was obvious that this plane was going to crash and take off, the mother did uh, one of the most unorthodox things you would ever do in fact they don't tell you to do this on the plane but this was the love she had for her daughter she undid her seatbelt, she got down on her knees in front of her daughter and just embraced her daughter and the crash happened the mother was killed but the daughter survived what an incredible lavishing love that is there's no greater earthly love that we seem to see than the maternal love for a mom for a child I want you to know that pales in comparison as great a love that is to the love that God has for you. In fact, the word that is used here by John, it says, "great love." Now, our, our once again, our English language does doesn't do justice. What that literally means is a foreign kind of love, otherworldly kind of love, something that this world has never seen or can even understand. That kind of foreign love is what God lavishes upon us. And the word lavish there is a word of completion, So it's not like he gives it and then he says, oh, Amy, I'm going to take it away from you now because you're not acting right. Or, Sonny, I'm I'm not going to let you have it because I don't think you quite measure up. No, it was a completed act. What he does is I lavish this other kind of worldly foreign love upon you and nothing can separate it. Nothing. Some of you need to hear that today because you're still trying to earn it. And you can't earn it. And John is saying this, how incredibly foreign this love is that he lavishes upon us, and he says this, so that we are called children of God. Now, the called there literally means to name. Like parents have a baby, they name that baby. They give the baby some kind of name they've thought up, whether it's trendy or whether it's a a family name or whatever it may have been. In a biblical time... The way parents would name their children, they would find a strong name, a name that would reflect something into that that child's life. And then what they would do is they would remind them of where that name came from. Case in point, this young couple have a baby by the name of David and what they would constantly remind him of King David. They would say, this is what David was like. This was his character. This was his strength. This is the way it was. They would constantly be reminding of that young person what their name may be. Let's say it was John or, or whatever it may be, Mary. They, w- they would reflect that back to somebody, and the, and the name, we name you this because reasons, and we want you to know the strength behind that name that we have given you. We've lost some of this today. We're so trendy. We just want to have trendy names, and we and, and We're going to name you Marshmallow and and this is what it's going to be. And and we start reflecting that character. But, But what God does is he lavishes this love upon us completely. And when he does that, he says, I name you as my child. Man, that's the facts. So often we don't feel that, but those are the facts. God has such a lavishing love for us that he just pours it out upon us. Isn't that good? Now here, I I read something. I I thought this was pretty interesting. I I just want to read it to you because as a child of God, we're thinking, what does that really, really mean? And what does it look like? I I love this. Let me read it. When a reigning monarch has a child, there appears to be no difference between that child and any other child. Both are fussy, have dirty diapers, throw temper tantrums, etc. But through years of patient training, exposure to kingly ways, role models and mentors, eventually there's a person who exhibits kingly attributes. I love that because it's saying there's two babies born here. They're just alike. They're just babies. They're going through the same thing. But because of the mentors, because of the raising up of this child, those kingly attributes start to come. What God does is He births you into His kingdom, and then He starts to work on you into your life so that you begin to develop and show and display those kingly virtues. It's all about Him. See, we think it's about us. God, now that you've made me your child, I want to do all these things for you. It's not that way. He wants to do them through you. I I, I want to share with you just two quick thoughts, and these are for free because I'm going to give you four that you're paying for in just a moment. But these... These two I want you to get. Number one is this, and John says this, our world cannot understand this kind of love. In fact, John, you read what he says there. He says that the world does not know us because it did not know him. In other words, the world has not experienced this love of God, thus they cannot understand us when we walk out in this love of God. Too many times we think, oh, if I'm following Jesus, things are going to get easier and the world is just going to love me and everybody's going to be my friend. Oh, no. The more you start living out this love of dispensing the grace of God and Jesus Christ of of what he has lavished upon you, the world cannot understand it. And when the world cannot understand something, what do they do? Try to get rid of it. And that's what they did with Jesus. And so, what I'm saying to you is this, is that the longer you walk in Christ and the more you display his character, the more that the culture of this world is going to try to come against you. And John is giving a good warning there to the people. <clears throat> Number two thought is this. There's a difference between paternity and fatherhood. It, it, taking the male species, any man it, 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 who becomes of man, um, he can father a child. But that doesn't mean that he is caring and nurturing and doing what a father. Um, there was this cross-stitch thing that Pam had done for me when we were young, just having kids. Anybody can be a father, but it takes somebody special to be a daddy. And I thought, man, that's, that's pretty good. A man can father a child. Paternity can do that. But being a father is really different. So what, here's what I'm saying is seven billion people on this planet, they could all be considered God created. But for those that have responded by faith, now there is a fatherhood of God and we are children of God. That is really special to know. I don't believe that, that everybody that's born is born again. I believe that there is an experience that happens and we understand the fatherhood of God. And, and really it boils down to this. When you come to Christ, your identity changes. He lavishes this love upon you, and your identity changes. And there will be certain things that will start to look in your life. And that's what I want to give you. I want to give you these four things that are starting to become evident in your life as a follower of Jesus. And this is the child of God test, okay? They're easy. They're four words. You can write them down, and and they all begin with P. So you ought to be able to get this uh, fine. Number one is this, is there will be Progress. There will be progress. You will not remain as you are. John even says it in in the scriptures here. Notice what he says in verse two. He says that dear children, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. You are in progress. I, I, I never expect a new person in Christ. To live that out in maturity yet. I believe that God is working that out in their life. That's why you always got to be careful about just living off zeal and emotion. You've got to be in progress. You're growing. And, and let me tell you, you, no matter how old you are in your faith, you're always growing. But one day the veil is going to be removed. We're going to see Christ face to face and we're going to see him. And, and, and ultimately there will be that ultimate transformation that we see taking place. Right now we're in these earth suits. And we struggle, but yet God is growing us. We will grow in love. We will grow in grace. We will grow uh, in sacrifice. We will grow in obedience. Are you making progress? Or is it still all about you? See, if it's still all about you, I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying that's a concern because Christ's image is going to be more and more reflected in you. In the 1800s, there was a group of women that used to meet for a Bible study, and they were studying, of all things, the Old Testament prophet Malachi. And Malachi 3.3, 3, it says, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And these women were trying to think, what does that really mean? And one of them said, I know a silversmith. He will be able to explain to us what this refining of silver is all about and how he watches over us. So they made an appointment to go to his his place where he did the process of refining silver and they were talking to him and there he was sitting behind around this kind of pot kind of thing. And he had silver in there and he was watching it. And they said, they said, do you watch it the whole time? And he responded by saying this, Oh yes, madam, I must sit with my eyes steadily fixed on the furnace for, for if the time necessary for refining be exceeded in the slightest degree The silver is sure to be injured. And they said, oh, we understand. You as the silversmith are watching over this. And so they thought, that's what it means, is that God is always watching over us. Sometimes it's heated up in the processes, but he's always watching over us. And they thought, that's good. And they, they got up to leave. And he says, oh, but ladies, he says, do you know when the process of refining of the silver is over? And they said, oh, no, when does that happen? He said, that is when I can look into this and I see my reflection. He said, then the silver is completely refined. And so all of a sudden that became even more clear that God is not only watching over you in this process that's heating up and refining, but in the end, when it's all said and done, you will reflect Jesus. That's good. Because I guarantee you some of the refining process is not pleasurable. And many people just say, well, I'm going to chunk it. I didn't know that's what it was all about. Oh, hang in there. Hang in there. He is refining to where one day you will, you will show his reflection. So number one is this. You will make progress. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it seems fast. But it will always be some kind of growth that's happening. Progress. Number two is this. Purity. Purity. And uh, so often... In the Christian faith, we, we, we are guilty about preaching the do's and the don'ts instead of allowing God to work it out through us. I'm not excusing impurity, but what I'm saying is he wants to work it out. Because notice what John says here in verse 3. He says, all who have this hope in them purify themselves just as he is pure it's because of this incredible love lavished out upon us completely that he in turn we want to love him back and in that loving back part of that is to walk in purity many times we think oh god i know you'll love me when i walk in purity he loves you regardless his lavishing love is complete but because of that we want to love him back by living lives that are reflecting him in purity there was a, a group of ladies, and, and one of the ladies, and they were Christians, and, and one of the ladies really had an attraction to the world in particular ways, and she felt like she could, she could live that particular way. Now, it's, it's much clear uh, what John was saying about these false teachers in John, these Gnostics. These Gnostics were saying Jesus' spirit was God, but his body was not God, so our flesh is evil, they would say, and so they would say what you can do is, You can love Jesus, but just let your flesh do what your flesh is going to do. Or try to control it and and just legalism. There was two options they had, legalism or completely licensed. Well, what am I going to do? Good night. I'd go licensed every time. Just let my flesh do what my flesh is going to do. And that that was what the Gnostics taught. You, You can know Christ, but just live any way you want to live. And that's what this girl was thinking a little bit is that, that uh, I, I wanna, I'm want i still attracted to many worldly things. I want to be a part of it. I, I'm saved, so I can do those things. And uh, these ladies got together, and they wanted to go into this this coal coal mine, and they just wanted to go in there. Well, this young lady happened to show up in a, a white-type uh, uh, dress, and they said, You can't go in there in a white dress. She said, Oh, yes, I can. No, you can't go in there in a white dress. Yes, I can. So they asked the, the coal miner, Can she go in there in a white dress? He said, She has permission to go in there in a white dress, but I can tell you this, she will go in with a white dress, but she will not come out with a white dress. And that's the way it is with so much of the world. We, we wanna, we wanna embrace it and we wanna become part of it and we think, oh, I'm a Christian. I can still do those things. I'm going to heaven one day. It doesn't matter what I put inside of me. It doesn't matter the activities I'm involved in, only to think we go in there with impurity, with purity, but we're gonna walk out with impurity. And this is what the Lord wants us to know, is, is that, listen, everything is per, uh, uh, permissive, but it's not beneficial. That's what Paul said. Yes, you can do it, but it's not going to be beneficial, especially for the kingdom. But a person who is truly has the Spirit of God indwelling them, and they're a child of God, is going to seek purity. Is there going to be times you fail? Sure. Sure. But that doesn't give you an excuse to live in that. Progress, purity. The third one is this. It's power. It's power. I want to look at, at verse 8. And um, this, gets, this gets hard. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. Now, that sounds impossible to never sin. And this is where I think the study of God's word is so important because literally in the, in the language here, there are certain words that are continual words. In other words, what, what John is saying here is that he's not saying they will never mess up. He is saying they will not live habitually in sin. There will be a conviction to bring them out of that. They will not habitually live in sin. So it's not like one sin and say, man, I'm not saved. And and there have been certain churches that have built on the fact they say, oh, you've sinned, you've fallen from grace. You need to be baptized again. You need to do this again. That's not what John is saying. He is saying that the person who is a child of God will not habitually live in sin. If they are habitually living in sin, it it, it tells me that they probably never knew Christ in the first place. But he says this, Jesus came to destroy the works of who? The devil. That's what he came to destroy. Now, what are the works of the devil? And I'm going to share some of these with you and see if, if you've ever experienced them. Number one, there's constant lying. I'm not talking about you constantly lying. I'm talking about him constantly lying to you. Oh, it's okay. That's okay. Is this really what it is? And lying. What God has said is holy. Is that true? There's a lying that comes. Second of all, there's accusing. You ever get those accusations? And this is what the devil, he's always accusing. Accusing, accusing, accusing. Another one is this. Tempting. There's tempting. Accusing and tempting are kind of the same Kind of like the same. Accusing would be, man, you're worthless. You, uh, you've, you've, you've asked forgiveness for that sin a hundred times. You really don't know God. You're not a very good person. You're, you know, the accusation that comes, the condemnation that's always coming. Lying is always saying, uh, uh, that lie or that temptation is coming and says, man, you can do this. It's no big deal. You can do this. And, and everybody in here has been tempted. So don't let anybody tell you they're so holy they never face temptation anymore. Because they just are lying. It's another thing of the enemy that has just come in there. But here let me let me encourage you. Temptation is not sin. Okay? Cuz we all get blasted. I mean, good night, sitting right here in church, you're blasted with temptation. But it is not sin. It's how you're going to respond. But that's of the devil. One more that's of the devil is he is continually constantly questioning, making you doubt and bringing these questions. This is the work of the devil. This is what God sent Jesus to destroy these things. But the results of the work of the devil is many are led astray into lostness. There's guilt and shame. There's bondage to flesh and and mental strongholds. There's doubt. and, and, And most of all, there's an effectiveness, ineffectiveness for the kingdom of God. But what has happened is, is that God has given his love for us so that we have power. This is my baseball glove. It, to me, it's a, a baseball glove is just part of my upbringing. It's just part. I feel very comfortable in a glove. I, I guarantee you if you could just preach and play catch, that's what I would do all day long. That would be a, be a great opportunity. Uh, but I love my glove. And, and uh, to play baseball, it's just something I grew up with, They're very comfortable with. And, and this is a good glove. And uh, I've got my glove there the stitching is okay, everything is good on that glove, it can work fine, it is there to be, be, go, be good and to do what it's uh, supposed to do. Say, glove, go play catch, go play catch, go play catch. And there's no way, the only way that glove can work is that if my hand is inside of it. Now it can be effective and can be used. And the reason I say that is this glove has no power until my hand is in it. You do not have within your capabilities the effect to overcome the enemy and to live in a life of purity and power unless his hand is in control. I know we think we can do it. And some of you are pretty good and some of you are good for nothing. (laughs) Oh, I say the same thing about myself. But what I'm saying is this, is that only him in you gives you power. And that's what allows you to overcome. So... How are you making progress? How are you walking in purity? How are you walking in power? And the the fourth one is this. It's promise. He has given his promises. Let's look at what what God's word says here in verse 10. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. In other words, his promises are real. You can be a child of God. And I started looking at some of these promises. And I'm just going to share some with you. Um, You're totally forgiven that you're never separated from the love of God. You have eternal life. I'm not talking about just heaven someday. I'm talking about full life now. He's always present. He never leaves you. He, he indwells you by His Holy Spirit. He is constantly interceding for you. He supplies all your needs. He gives guidance and direction. He gives future and a hope. All of these promises are His. He didn't promise you you're going to be rich. He didn't promise you that you're going to always walk in complete health. He promises you these promises, and they are always there. The reason we struggle is is because if I make Pam a promise, let's say I, I, she is over somewhere in town and so said, I promise I'll be there at 2 o'clock. Well, I, everything within my power, I'm going to try to be there at 2 o'clock. But what if my car doesn't start? What if uh, there's an accident, the the roads are blocked? What if I cannot get there? So we always see promises as contingent upon circumstances. Let's throw God into the equation. God makes promises. What are circumstances that are going to keep him from fulfilling that? None. Do you think traffic means anything to God? Do you think time demands mean anything to God? His promises are real, and he can carry them out to the fullest. And some of us need to know that today because we are walking wounded, and we think, "God, are you real? Are these promises real? Are you strong enough to fulfill them, or my sin going to block them or anything? No, no, His promises are real. How are you making progress? How are you doing on purity How are you doing on power are you are you overcoming I mean, I know some of those sins of eating your lunch, but now you're starting to see God's power work through you. He's starting to fulfill his plan for you. And then how are you doing on those promises? Are, are, do you believe them? Do you believe they're real? I want to I end with this, and this is a personal word. You know, for me, to get up and speak, it, it, it's it's... It's a struggle, not, not, a, not a bad struggle. It's a good struggle for me because I cannot get up and talk in front of anybody unless I am working through my own issues with the Word of God that I am working through. And, and it goes with this message today. Paul, the Apostle Paul, other than Jesus, you know, man, more effective for the kingdom of God than anybody we ever know about. When Paul was arrested and in Rome... He wrote his last writings were to a young pastor named Timothy in Ephesus. They're called First and Second Timothy. Go read them. These were his last writings. And in First Timothy chapter 1, he says this about himself. He calls himself the chief of sinners. This is at the end of his life. He's calling himself the chief of sinners. Earlier in his life, he had said, I'm a bondservant of Christ or a servant of Jesus Christ. And we're thinking, okay, those don't... But at the end of your life, Paul, you're saying you're the chief of sinners? And I wrestle with that because I'm thinking, Paul, do you know everything you've done? Man, you took the gospel all over the known world. You saw more people come to Christ than anybody. You're giving your life for Christ. You've seen all these things for Christ. Man... Paul, you're a hero, man. You ought to be on the billboard. You ought to be up there. I understand you calling yourself a servant or a bond slave. You know, you say those things. But here you are at the end of your life. You look back at over all these things and you're saying you're the chief of sinners. How are you saying that? And then the Lord just started giving me a revelation in this particular area because I said, God, I need, I need that. As a young man in the faith, I'm not saying he was actually doing this, but there's a temptation when we look at our lives, to compare ourselves to one another. And when we compare ourselves to one another, we say, oh, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm not really a rotten scoundrel. I can show you some rotten scoundrels, God, but, you know, this is, I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ. But when he come to the end of his life, his only comparison was Jesus. He wasn't there to compare himself to the rest of the world. He knew that someday he was going to stand before Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to stand before all the people in the world. He was going to stand before Jesus alone. So at the end of his life, he looks at no matter all the faithfulness and fruitfulness that have been in his life, all he can see is, God, I was the chief of sinners, and your grace is what I needed. See, folks, one day we're not going to stand before each other. We can do a pretty good job of comparing ourselves to each other. One day we're gonna stand before Jesus. And I don't say that for guilt inducing. I say that because he is the one who has lavished completely his foreign love upon you. And he wants to see you. I want you to bow with me, if you would. Listen, I I, I this is God's word and sometimes it is challenging because God in his love for you want you to be growing because one day you're going to the veil's going to be removed and you're going to face to face with him just just keep your head bowed and just kind of isolate yourself best you can John said, and this is how we know who the children of God are. Do you know you're a child of God? Or are you just hoping? are you just thinking, I've gone through some motions. I mean, if you come to the point of life of saying, Jesus, I need you desperately. You destroyed the work of the devil. I need you to live in me. I need your full forgiveness. Not walk under condemnation.
1: I mean, do you know?
0: I know somebody can say, but Mark, how can you be so sure? I mean, this is all we know and we're limited in our earth suits and we're we're limited by what we see. and It's by faith alone. I... Listen, folks, I am not perfect, but I'm not the man I used to be. And I'm not the man I'm going to be. I've put my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Have you made that step? If not, why not today? I don't care if you've gone to church since you were nine months before you were born. Have you made a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ? Because one day you're going to stand before Him. In just a moment, I'm I'm going to to pray. But there's going to be people up here to pray with you. Because we need each other. When our family's fracturing or our health is fracturing or our emotions are on edge or we're spiritually dry... Or we need guidance. We need others to surround us and pray. And there's going to be people to pray with you in just a moment. Sometimes we just need an altar to come and lay the things we need to die of on. Or we got the Lord's Supper here today and you just need to come and because you need that closeness with God. Father, Lord, I believe this is the most important time that we have together is when we respond to your prompting in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray over the next few moments that it not be routine, God, that it not be the beginning of the end, but that it be the time when we hear you and respond. Because, Lord, we all need to respond. and now, Lord, speak to us.
1: In Jesus' name. Let's stand together.